This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Decadent Slime Edition. It's Wednesday, January 11, 2017. On today's show, The OA is a new Netflix streamer. It's about a young blind woman who returns after an unexplained disappearance. Mystery upon mystery, her sight has been restored, and she claims to have been a traveler among the dead. It is dividing audiences, I really mean this, as down the middle as anything I think we've ever covered on this show. Can't wait to discuss. And then the August Wilson play Fences, it's now firmly part of the modern canon. Um, it's on syllabi, it's revived to great and justified acclaim, but it has only recently completed a 25-year journey to the silver screen. We discussed the film adaptation which stars and was directed by Denzel Washington. We're joined by Dominic Taylor, professor of theater at UCLA. He's also a playwright and director. And finally, do hard times make great art? Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Stephen. Um, uh, Julia, before we uh, plow ahead, uh, surely there's some business to take care of. Yeah. Uh, on Wednesday, January 25th, Slate is hosting an event along with NYU called Not the New Normal, How the Media Should Cover the Trump Presidency. Uh, the panelists will include me and Trumpcast host Jacob Weisberg, as well as David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, Lydia Polgreen, who's the new editor of The Huffington Post. And it'll be moderated by Brian Stelter, who, among many other things, hosts Reliable Sources on CNN. All of the proceeds of the event are going to go to the Committee to Protect Journalists, Meryl Streep's favorite uh, cause of the moment. Woohoo! Prominently name-checked at the Golden Globes. Um, so, as in all things, we follow in Meryl's footsteps. You can get information and tickets about the event at slate.com slash live. Again, that's January 25th fifth in new york city i believe that's a wednesday uh also on the plus segment of our show which is available for slate plus members we will be discussing our top podcast picks or more accurately dana and i will mention the podcasts that we are currently obsessed with while we also interrogate steven who listens to no podcasts about why he does not and whether perhaps he should if you're not a Slate Plus member, you should consider joining at slate.com slash culture plus. It's a great way to get bonus segments of our show every week and of all of the popular Slate podcasts. It's a great way to get an ad-free feed with all of our shows. And it's a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. All right, Steve, let's commence. There is no quick way, I think I'm on safe ground to say, no quick way to summarize the new Netflix TV show, The OA, but I will try. Prairie is a young blind woman who disappears only to reappear seven years later with her sight restored and with a new name. She insists that people call her The OA. She gathers unto herself a small five-person cult of local, sort of outcasts, most of them are outcasts, uh, all of them are would-be spiritual wanderers, to share with them and not with the FBI the story behind her disappearance and along the way to enlist them on a journey into the mysteries of life, death, the soul, and resurrection. The show is the brainchild of writer-director Zal Batmangli and Britt Marling, who also stars as Prairie. Why don't we listen to a clip? But I knew that they were gone. The other captives? When, when you say gone, do you mean dead? Um, 
Is that why you attempted to end your life with the bridge? That's not what I was doing. But you jumped. I was trying to get back to them to... I was trying to get help in order... You could have called the police from the shelter. They could have helped. That, that wouldn't That wouldn't have helped. No, okay, we're just trying to follow. So, they're not dead? We all died more times than I can count. I think that's enough for now. All right, well, as you probably picked up from that clip, she's just reappeared. She's being questioned by uh, skeptical authorities. Um, and that, uh, and thus we begin uh, the setup of the whole show. Julia, I'm 4.2 episodes into this. Um, and uh, there's more and more and more and more. So it's really hard to sort of isolate one thing that's the premise of it, expands upon itself in ways that um, strike some people as quite ambitious. What how far did you make it in the OA? Alas, I only watched the 80-minute uh, pilot. I think that's an accurate reflection of the time of the pilot. The, the the episodes are all different lengths, which is a strange thing that, you know, these Netflix shows can allow for. It's, it's sort of disconcerting to not know how long you're in for when you start a show. Yeah, so I, I was like, oh, I'll watch a couple of these episodes before we discuss. But then the first episode wound on and on. Uh, the credit sequence for the entire series appears in minute 50, seemingly, of the show. And then there's like 10 or 15 minutes of show after. As a critic and fan of art and the ability of artists to explore things, I applaud Netflix for its boundary and rule breaking. And uh, I haven't actually seen any of Britt Marling's work. I know she's produced some interesting and fascinating stuff over the last couple of years. Um, she seems like a compelling figure. This seems like an unusual show. Uh, I have no patience for it. I don't plan to watch it anymore. <laughs> like, <laughs> I knew the predicate was going to deliver. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I it's, I, it feels unfair. Uh, and, and perhaps one should say that as a critic called upon to speak about the OA, I should have committed and watched all eight episodes before opining. But consider me a representative busy person who doesn't have a ton of time for TV and wants the TV to deliver satisfying distraction and impact in a nicely doled out dribbly timetable. Um, this did not suffice my TV desires. Did you guys feel an echo of Stranger Things in this? I mean, not in the sense that it would have influenced it because they came out too close together for it to be a, a copy or anything like that. But but they both have these sort of similar spiraling into different metaphysical realms with each new plot development. Yes, and similarly, I didn't watch more than two episodes of Stranger <laughs> Things because I was like, all right, yeah, I don't, like I don't. You enjoy your realms. I got to go. Yeah, exactly. Have fun with your realms, your spooky <laughs> realms. Uh, I just, I, I don't know. That's not what I'm looking for from episodic television. I do not want spooky realms explored. Dana, you touched upon this sort of secondary question of the segment, which is, is pop culture having a metaphysical moment, which I some think journalist has recently um, and, and astutely, uh, perceptively asked. But but before we get there, let's answer the primary question. I mean, did you did you like it? Are you going to stick with it? How far did you get? Yeah, I mean, I think I think only because I am going to watch this this first full eight hours, which I'm about three and a half episodes into probably just because it's pretty cleverly constructed to make you want to watch the next episode it's it's got a, a good cliffhanger ending to each single spot i don't know i i agree with every word julia said but i also sort of respected this series ambition and its strangeness and that it didn't one thing it certainly didn't do was fall into a known category although i say it resembles stranger things and it's spiraling into metaphysical realms those realms are very different here than they were there this series seems more artistically confident to me than Stranger Things and more in control of its voice and tone, but it's not its not really my kind of thing either. 
like Julia, as a consumer of TV, I'm not sure I would have the patience for it. But knowing that there are some big revelations coming up, and in, in some of the prep we did for this topic, I don't know what the spoilers are, but there are big, gigantic twists coming in the next few episodes. I sort of want to stay with it to see what these two crazy kids, Britt Marling and Zal Batmanley, are up to. I also think she's a very uh, interesting television actress, not the kind of character that usually headlines a show. She has this spacey kind of Luna Lovegood quality, you know, Mm -hmm. like the Harry Potter character. She's got that same pale blonde hair, pale blue eyes, kind of staring into space, has this, you can see how this figure, this formerly blind girl showing up suddenly not blind after a seven-year disappearance in this suburban drab community that's kind of nicely depicted, why she would have this charismatic following of these five people who gather around her. I also love Phyllis Smith in one of the supporting roles. This this woman who's a character actress who you've probably seen in many things, but she never leads anything. And she plays a high school teacher who gets drawn into this this five-person sort of cult that hangs out with, uh, with the main character. She also was the, vo- the voice of sadness, I should add, an inside-out Phyllis Smith. She's wonderful. Oh, no kidding. Um, I like that uh, aspect of it the best. That is the gathering unto herself these five acolytes who are going to hear the story, the backstory, the hidden backstory of how she disappeared, why she disappeared, um, and then presumably engage in some kind of a journey themselves, a to sort of death-bound or death-exploratory journey themselves. Um, uh, I like the idea that one of them, it doesn't give very much away, one of them is this seemingly spiritually dead um, high school bully who's sort of really verging on being a psychopath. Um, And a very important subplot of it is his possible reclamation as a, you know, spiritual or moral human being. I mean, these are the terms that the show itself uses. That said, um, I, I... I kind of took the OA to be almost the opposite of the zombie fantasy that's animating a lot of genre TV and movies these days. The zombie fantasy is that you first person embodied human being are the only real or one of the few real sentient, you know, people left. Um, You're under siege by these uh, zombied others to whom you know, oh, oh, absolutely no moral obligation whatsoever because they're zombies so you can kill them you can slaughter them you have to to protect yourself that's a one particular fantasy this seems to me just completely the opposite fantasy which is all of us universally not only are sentient or or you know in possession of conscious selfhood but in possession of some kind of a metaphysical entity like a soul it's definitely i mean the show is pushing this theme unrelentingly. I mean, this is not my imposition on the material. I mean, this is 100% what the show seems to be pushing kind of unrelentingly is this idea that we are, you know, I mean, spirits in the material world. I mean, it's very much about that. Um, And I think if if that kind of metaphysical hooey doesn't hook you a little bit, if you you aren't captivated by what really are the metaphysics uh, being explored through the plot through this particular you know story if you find them a little goofy as i did it's really hard to stick with i mean but the bizarre thing is julia i can't i can't stop watching in some compulsive way i mean i there are moments when i think i like literally nothing about it including the writing and the performances but i have to admit there's something about how peculiar the theme is 
um, and and the way it's being materially treated that I just can't, I can't stop. I kind I of, I kind, yeah, maybe that was my why my voice got so wandery talking about it too, is that I can see all these, all these flaws with it, but more so than Stranger Things or other, you know, dumped in one chunk Netflix shows we've talked about, I could see myself sitting if I had time and, and binging this whole thing. Well, something that we haven't really mentioned is that as with the film that was the first movie these two made together, Britt Marling and Zalbat Manli, there's a question of the sanity of the the narrator, right? There's this kind of Scheherazade structure where she, the Britt Marling character, Prairie, gathers these five people to come and listen to her stories every night, the stories of what purportedly has happened to her in her life. And they gather in this empty house under construction that used to be a sort of drug dealing center, and they light candles, and she sits there and tells them this story. And night after night, they come back to tell the story. And so the Scheherazade structure along with the craziness of the story she's relating, leads you to this question, is she sane or is she not sane? And that was the same question that their first film, The Sound of My Voice, revolved around, whether or not the the main character played by her had actually traveled in time as she claimed to or had not. And uh, the two of them in an interview about that movie, about Sound of My Voice, said that after screenings, when they would accompany a screening of Sound of My Voice, they would ask the audience, how many of you think her character actually time traveled and how many think she didn't, it would almost break down 50-50. You know, and I think that this this series has a little bit of that, too, that we may be being led on some shaggy dog chase through the mind of an unwell woman. Oh, but that that sounds so interesting to me. Like, I, I feel like I respect everything about this show. That sounds fascinating. That sounds great. And in general, if you're choosing between the zombie fantasy, which is very audience flattering, right, and then and the sort of you're the only naive, you're the only idiot, the whole world is more rich and complex and the tapestry is has dimension that you can never comprehend. I think that's a really interesting framing, Steve. It makes sense that those kinds of narratives might allow for more complex or less repetitive storytelling tropes, right? Like the whole point is it's a mystery and you don't know and what's the thing outside the thing. And I actually think that I agree with you that this seems more interesting and sure of itself than Stranger Things and Stranger Things was so wrapped up in its like Spielbergian nostalgia bow um, that it didn't feel as fresh. I respect everything about it. And yet it's this funny thing about where TV and movies are today that is confounding my viewing expectations. Like when I set out to watch a movie, I'm game for I'm down for whatever, as they say, and I will give my two hours to, you know, the auteur and receive whatever is delivered unto me. And I'm excited for that. And what I want with TV and the reason I prefer to watch TV at home and I don't like renting movies at home is that when I'm on my couch, I want something that will come in a more predictable package. I want either 30 or 60 minutes of entertainment. Knock that back to 22 or 40 if you're blipping through commercials. You would Uh, like the credit sequence to appear somewhere near the beginning. Yes. I would like a little bit right at the beginning and a bit at the end. Like, I don't want my mind blown formally from my couch. <laughs> and I and like what a what a foolish uh what a foolish position. I I I I'm glad for the bounty of the world. I feel like I read a bunch of reviews of this show which suggested that the characters seemed thin or that the premise was hokey and manipulative. I didn't feel that at all. I thought the the world seemed a little familiar because we've seen some similar stuff recently, but the Britt Marling character's sheer presence and charisma seemed worth it alone. Mm. Dana, it sounds like you and I are are um, linking pinkies and risking near death, but are going to plunge forward. If, um, I, if you do it, I'll do it. How about that? Yeah. And we'll check back in in a future plus segment. Right. And we are talking about finishing the OA, not actually trying to auto asphyxiate and report back from the other side. (laughs) 
<laughs> Although for Julia, the two experiences may be related. Yeah, I just don't want there to be any oral kind of oral contract that I'm not really sure of. Okay, well, the show's the OA. We're going to have uh, plenty of listeners who dug it, really dug it, way more than we did. So come shoot us some spleen at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Fences, a Pulitzer Prize-winning play, is the most well-known of August Wilson's majestic 10-play cycle about Pittsburgh, specifically African-American life in Pittsburgh. It's now a film starring Denzel Washington, who also directed. He stars as Troy Maxson, a charming, manipulative, and tragically wounded patriarch. The play takes place famously in the backyard of Maxson's house, uh, but it spun out a world and covered an epoch in the history of African-Americans from segregation to the first taste of integration, all through the story of Maxson's struggle to support his family and his family's struggle for a taste of life apart from his tyranny. In the clip that we're about to hear, uh, Maxson dresses down his son, interrogates him along the way to trying to answer one of the central questions of his son's life, whether or not his father simply likes him. How come you ain't never liked me? Like you? Who the hell said I got to like you? What law is there say I got to like you? Want to stand up in front of my face and ask a damn fool-ass question like that? Talking about liking somebody. Come here, boy, when I talk to you. Straighten up, damn it. I asked you a question. What law is there say I got to like you? None. All right, then. Don't you eat every day? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you eat every day? Yeah. As long as you're in my house, you put a sir on the end of it when you talk to me. Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. Got clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why do you think that is? Because of you. <laughs> Hell, I know it's because of me, but why do you think that is? Because you like me? All right. Well, to talk about uh, both the play and the film Fences, we're joined by Dominic Taylor, professor of theater at UCLA. He's also a playwright and director known for the plays I Wish You Love and Hype Hero, Wedding Dance, and Personal History. Dominic, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, it, this, this play, as you know, took a very long, circuitous route to the um, onto film. Um, but I'd love to hear first, before we talk about that and this particular film, I'd love to hear about your particular history with the material, with August Wilson's play. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about how Denzel Washington uh, pulled it off. In 1987, when Fences was on Broadway, I had just gotten out of college and I was an intern at New Dramatist. And I was about to have my first production of a play called Personal History at the Pelican Studios, which was on 46th and 8th. Literally interning at New Dramatist, August Wilson was one of the members. And one day on break from rehearsal, I knew that Fences was up and I, I had seen August, but I didn't say anything to him. And I'm on the corner of 8th Avenue and 46, getting a cup of coffee. He's getting a cup of coffee. He's smoking uh, a cigar at the time. And I said to him, you're August Wilson. I'm an intern at New Dramatist. And I have a play around the corner. And I gave him a postcard for my play. That's literally how we met in 1987, <laughs> as weird as that is. I was associate artistic director at Penumbra, where I worked on a production of Fences in 2008, so I guess I know the I mean, I know the play really well in a bunch of ways. To answer your question succinctly, August Wilson and I, he passed away in 2005. 
I met him in 1987, and I don't know, we had a bunch of interactions, but the most intense one was when we were on the Committee on Aesthetics up at Dartmouth on Golden Pond, which was great, which was great, but it was just an intense period of time talking about how one makes art, what's black art, all that kind of good stuff. Can I ask what you thought of Fences when you first saw it, when you got those tickets from Wilson, uh, and you and you sat down and saw the play for the first time? Oh, the very first time I saw it with James Earl Jones, I was um, I was shocked. I'm wonderfully shocked. I mean, I think you know Troy is a is a Troy is a character that you don't see, and I know that a lot of people try to compare him to Willie Loman in the American theater, but he actually drifts towards you know theater historians the Lear space. Like he's a fascinating character, but he's also a black man that everybody knew. I mean, my. One of the things which I probably think my first biggest takeaway from that first production, my father was a man who I asked once, how come I wasn't his friend? And I had a moment. And my father had a Troy rant in the same way. Like it was one of those moments where I'm like, I cannot believe he captured this thing exactly in a way that I was shocked by. Because I, I remembered going back to my teenage years, where I said, Daddy, how come I'm not your friend. He said, you go out in the streets to go get friends. I go to work, you go to school. This is how this goes. And I, and it was just like the Troy thing. It wasn't as extreme as Troy, but it was close. There is a, there is a thing that the play holds this grand space for me. And I was unbelievably pleased that they turned it into a film uh, for many reasons. But I think the notion that the film exists um, in the same way that there are many productions of Fences, I'm also hoping that there are many film versions of Fences, good and bad. All right. Well, uh, the acute listener will notice that we have a slightly different sound quality in our connection with Dominic. We had to, to reset because we had an unstable Skype connection, raise fist at Skype. But just to get back to, yeah, so you were saying you hope there'll be many different movie versions of Fences. And, and I will say that my viewing experience of Fences, having never seen any productions of the play, uh, was gratitude at having access to an important piece of theatrical material more than excitement that a brilliant movie had been made. And I'm, I'm curious for your perspective on the movie itself and, and um, how you think it serves Wilson's work. Right. Well, you know, one of the things you just said, which I think is probably the most important and I think is fantastic is that his play got made into a film. I think that the, the best takeaway from the film is that the, play is a piece of theater that is wonderful and should be seen and known by everyone, not just Americans. It should be known by everyone. Uh, The film itself as a film, if you pull yourself back, think that the film feels like a production of a play that was on Broadway or that ran for a while. And we had these actors on stage putting it together. I mean, I think Viola was fantastic because Viola is always fantastic. And I think uh, Michael T. Williamson was wonderful as Gabe. Um, but I think it's hard when you have such poetry and you want to find the right um, cinematic tools to help uh, elevate that poetry. I mean, you know, what ends up happening in the film, and I'm not taking, I'm not taking anything away from it, is you're watching acting. So Denzel puts the camera on sticks for the most part, and he has, you know, close-ups or twofers, and he's watching these people act, which is wonderful. But that takes away some of the potential poetry. And you don't have to be hyper-creative and you don't want dollies flying all over the place. But you do want to think of ways in which you can elevate that poetry cinematically. And, um, and I just think it's a, I mean, I would just have a different take on it. But that's, you know, that's me. That would be my version of it. Dana, what did you make of it as a film? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Dominic kind of laid his finger on it when he said it's 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 like you're seeing a great piece of material performed by great actors, but somehow you're not watching a great movie. I think a lot of critics had that reaction to this film that it has it didn't it didn't make that transition from the you know the proscenium space of the stage into this more opened out naturalistic stage or sound stage on which a film takes place, it didn't make that transition without feeling somehow a little boxed in and claustrophobic. What I said in my review of the movie, which in general I liked and encourage everyone to see, but I said it was like getting front row seats to a great Broadway production, except that you might not choose to sit in the front row, right? I mean, it might not be the <laughs> ideal perspective. There's something almost a little too flat, head on, you know, the, a sense that we're almost too much in the faces of these actors. A lot of close-ups, for example, and almost always looking at the person who's mm-hmm. who's, who's speaking. And because this play in a very poetic way, it consists of a lot of monologues, right? It's not naturalistic right. speech at all. And so right. that, that right. non-naturalism is much more noticeable when it's filmed close up, of course, than when you're seeing it in a proscenium stage. Yeah, there's also sort of right. a halfway shift. I mean, the the play, as I understand it, takes place really in one setting. It's all in, yes. the, in the yard of this house. And the mm-hmm. movie makes the choice to sort of expand that out, create a backyard and a front yard and a couple internal rooms. Uh, and there's a, a bit of sort of hopscotching you know, back and forth within a slightly wider range, you know, which made me think about other conversations we've had about movie adaptations of stage works, right? We talked about Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I think, when Mike Nichols died. Um, There's a funny way in which, like, I almost wish it had been more conservative and just been in one place and found different ways to shoot this one setting or something. Like, the, the illusion of there being more space with it still being so constrained actually made you feel a little more how much it was... A stage piece, I think. Well, you know, and I and I hate to piggyback on that, but this this is the thing. It's so fascinating. So the Bono Troy breakup, when they break up, happened in the play in the backyard after the fence is constructed, so mm-hmm. that Bono and Troy are literally on other um, on opposite sides of the fence. And when you're watching the play, you you are watching these two. It's a whatever you call it, bromance or whatever. But you're watching these two men break up in that fence space because that's their backyard where they lied together and you're watching one guy on the other side and this guy on the other side and it you know hurts a little bit but when they're in the bar it's like why am i in this bar like what is you know what i mean i haven't seen this bar before they have to break up in the bar and 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 maybe it is you know insider baseball stuff because since i know the play so well it's just like oh that's interesting um Mm -hmm. but i i don't that's i think there is a way to open it up if you choose to do that I just think you have to uh, think it through. I would agree to say just keep it in terms of that stage staging idea, the way they do streetcar, the way they do other plays. But um, I think if you do open it up, there might be a way. It just wasn't, I, for my feeling, not thought through fully. But it's so weird because it's so valuable and important. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. one of those things I said to uh, a friend of mine. It's as if someone had said to me, uh, you know, you get to go see a copy of the Mona Lisa or some visual piece of art or Guernica by Picasso, but it's not the original. But the fact that you get to see it and you get to know what it is, is much better than seeing, you know, I don't know. I, it's just a strange kind of thing. Yeah, no. transfer to film. Yeah. Yeah, there's an argument to be made for the filmed play. I mean, film critics are famous for tearing down filmed theatrical pieces and saying that they're too stagey and too boxy and claustrophobic. And this mm-hmm. movie does have some of those flaws. But at the same time, yeah, you have this feeling, as Julia said, of, of gratitude that you're getting to experience yeah. this beautiful 
piece of literature spoken by these great actors who clearly know it and love it better than probably any actors working in the world right now, having done it on Broadway together. Yeah, it's yeah. also worth mentioning that a lot of the supporting cast was also in the 2010 Broadway yeah. production. So these people have all been an ensemble cast for a long time. Stephen Henderson, who plays Bono, the character that Dominic was just talking about, the best the best friend of Denzel Washington's Troy, is just fantastic in the role, just so quiet and subtle. And I feel like that's a performance that's not going to get recognized in award season because it's too giving and too generous and too sort of um, reserved, but it's just beautiful. And he's also a theatrical, I mean, you know, perhaps the the dialogue does him some favors because he's a more reserved character and less prone to the monologizing that feels, uh, uh, you know, noticeably theatrical within the play. But he's, that performance is incredible. I agree. And, and it's also, you know, it's, it's amazing to see Denzel giving this performance at this stage in his career. I mean, he's, yeah. I mean, he looks old, right? And carries this sense of loss and frustration and anger. And, you know, just the ability to to have in my head, I loved your most Mona Lisa metaphor, this under, visceral understanding of what this play was about and the power of the unease and uncertainty and pain of the possibility of racial progress for people who didn't have those opportunities. Like, that's not a subject I've seen much on the American stage or in American cinema. And so to spend time in the company of these actors telling that story, um, like, I recommend that people go see it for all of my complaints about the addition of a kitchen. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, and I was going to say, Denzel, some of, the, some of the, the work that he does, like the confession that he has to Rose, and some of that work that he does is really like on point in a way that I just think people would be shocked by how good that is. I mean, I think one of the things which is hard when we very first time we see Troy, we have to understand that he was the major league swinging superstar. He is fighting for integration in some small way by being on this truck. And in the midst of that saying that time one should never have been too early turns to a bottle of gin. Like all of that happens in a real tight five-minute window of talking. If you're filming that moment, you have to find different ways to engage it. When you're on stage, what you can easily do is you can move human beings closer or further away. But when you're filming it, if you just have a shot with three people, once you move one of those people, they're going to start drifting your eye. So it, it is the thing about taking the tools that you have and trying to figure out a way to get the complexity of this Troy character into that opening moment. But it's, it's, a, it's a Herculean task in some way. It's like Lawrence Olivier doing Hamlet or whatever or Brana doing whatever he was doing, <laughs> all the bunch of stuff he does. But I think Denzel does a really nice job. It's kind of compelling to watch it. Well, Dominic Taylor, thank you so much for coming on and talking about uh, August Wilson's uh, Fences and the Denzel Washington film adaptation. Uh, thank you really for one of the better segments we've done on the show in a long time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. It was great to chat. Cool. All right. Bye-bye. Do hard times make great art? Dana. all right i can work up a little bit more no i like it i like it as we head into uncharted territories in american history uh, it's brought upon us all of us i think of all all of us sensitive thinking people right um it's brought with it some dread but a certain kind of nostalgia which may or may not be decadent um people are wondering whether or not, for example, the mass slaughter of World War I didn't also yield uh, extraordinary poetry and uh, uh, and novels. Similarly, the two golden ages of Hollywood, 
the 1930s and 1970s coincided with two of the worst, more troubled decades uh, in America of the 20th century. Um, you could make any number of examples. So now I will once again throw the question to you, Dana. Um, is this decadent nostalgia or is there something to this correlation? You know, I don't I don't this argument to me, like a lot of grand sweeping historical cultural arguments doesn't really add up. And I want you guys to to try to explain it to me or or help me debunk it together. I mean, I don't know. There's some part of me that wants to get skeptical. I know it's not your designation, Steve, and, and there 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 may be an argument to be made that that great art is always produced in periods of economic or political distress. But then I think about the 1920s, the period that I'm spending a lot of time researching right now, and the great heyday of silent film. That was sort of a boom time for for the country. We were in between two wars. You know, Europe was in all kinds of disarray, but America was doing pretty good in the 1920s. I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm I'm going to need some more examples to believe that that's true in the first place. And then there's going to be the moral valence of like, okay, let's say that is true. Let's say that when lots of people are suffering and oppressed and poor and miserable, then a few luxury enjoying artists are able to make some great art. Is that something to aspire to or hope for? I don't know. To me, when I started to see these pieces crop up about, you know, will this new dark age of our nation be the the age of great art? I don't know. I I felt a certain um, revulsion and cynicism (laughs) and sort of felt like, you know, let's concentrate on making sure that people have health care and food <laughs> before we start worrying well, about Steve, that. Well, Steve, you should you should make the case. You should make the case. Because I feel like when we were discussing whether to do this as a topic, I was like, Ugh, I don't know. I feel like I've seen so many satisfying dismissals of this idea. It seems so obvious that the more people who have like economic and social security and health care, the more likelihood that they can spend time producing art as opposed to, you know, having to take pull like three shifts at four different jobs. Uh, like, why would we even debunk that? And you're like, oh, let's fight. So fight. Give the other side. <laughs> Give the other side. Well, I mean, I think I think there are a couple of different issues. One is, um, you know, is historically there's some kind of correlation between the social conditions under which art is made and the kind of lasting, you know, kind of consensus um, surrounding the quality of the art produced. Um, and then the second question is, I think Dana quite correctly points to, is whether or not... Um, I mean, I use the word decadent because I do think it's decadent. I mean, I think wishing for social misery in order to, you know, as an input, in order to have as an output, Van Gogh or you know, or even Shakespeare is repulsive to me as well. I mean, I think that that's that's ridiculous. I think you know we should aspire to be a dignified and affluent society. However, here is where I do think the question achieves some interesting traction, which is. To the degree you countenance anything like an argument about the last 20 to 30 years being a neoliberal era, in other words, an era dominated by the idea of the market, the ways in which art, both popular and supposedly high art, have been brought to the market have shaped their respective contents. And I think there's an argument to be made that that's conduced to a highly market-directed, other-directed occasionally quite shallow, self-serving popular culture. And to the extent that no one would wish for social dislocation on a large scale in order to have good art, if there is going to be social dislocation on a large scale, something more than irony uh, or an attempt to make a fast buck is probably going to dominate the cultural response to it. And therefore, art and not late night comedy TV, you know, or, um, you know, Saturday Night Live, or the distraction of Taylor Swift and the Kardashians, something more than that is going to be required 
as a coping mechanism. That's just human history and has been human history. Um, and uh, I don't hope for it. I guess I, in a weird way, what I'm feeling nostalgic for is not All Quiet on the Western Front or um, Starry Night. I'm feeling nostalgia for the Kardashians and Taylor Swift. Um, so I guess in my ordering of preferences, as tested by history calling bullshit on me, is um, I'd rather have uh, health care and a sane president um, and uh, liberal democracy than, you know, extraordinary paintings uh, deeded over to posterity. But we don't get to choose. And to the extent we don't get to choose, I think we are going to learn some kind of a lesson about the relationship between social conditions and um, individual creative output. I just don't buy your entire premise. There was Taylor Swift over the last eight years, but there was also all kinds of other work. Like at every moment, there is drivel and there is sophistication. And I actually think social conditions and political conditions maybe have less to do with what is produced than how what is produced is received. Like I feel like at every moment there is drag for the masses. There are strivers trying to make art qua art. There are changes in the economics of production that allow something that's striving more arguably for art qua art like the OA to appear on a mainstream service. The economics of Netflix will no doubt not continue forever. So we should enjoy We're in a moment of TV decadence, right? Like televisual decadence is where we live. There's a lot of economically not totally rational production decisions getting made and we enjoy their fruits. But like everything exists at every time. And then as we read those documents in the moment and after, I think they gain power. Like Moonlight is a movie of extraordinary beauty and wisdom that means a different thing emerging in the fall of 2016 around the election of Trump than it would have had come out in the fall of 2014 or 2015, even though the theatrical material behind like that adaptation, that movie could have happened a year before or since. But to watch that movie of the story of the autonomy of someone who is poor, who is gay, who is black, all categories of people whose rights may be impinged or, and are at risk now adds additional interpretive heft urgency and poignancy to the way we read that movie. But I don't know, uh, like, I don't know that tough times make for better production conditions. I mean, I, 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 I think I, I've said this over and over and over again over the course of the show. There's always a golden age in something, right? There's always a bull market in something. You have to find it. If uh, every single person on this planet were treated with a full suite of Denmark-like human dignity, people would still find an urgent way to depict the human condition. I absolutely agree with that. Nonetheless, art reflects the social conditions of its time. Moonlight is an extraordinary film. I couldn't admire it more. But it's made $12.7 million. When One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest came out in 1974, it was, I, I, uh, I think it made what would be the equivalent now of $200 million at the box office. You know, there in in the 1970s, it was for whatever reason. I mean, forget trying to come up with a universal, timeless formula for the relationship between social inputs and artistic outputs. Instead, look at specific cases where the culture suddenly couldn't make do with the sound of music anymore, and and so um, you know, Hollywood crashed on the shores of a hundred overpriced musicals and finally refound the formula. This is Mark Harris's book in some in some respects, and also Peter Biskin's. I mean, finally refound the formula with very urgent, very violent, very raw films that reflected the national mood back to the country in a completely honest way. And those were the commercially dominant movies of the time. And there are going to be moments where the culture urgently needs 
to experience something in common in order artistically in order to survive what it's experiencing in common politically. And and I, I say this as someone who doesn't wish it to happen. I I, I would rather have an a, a, a complacent culture, and I do think that that's the defining word of the last 25 years. I mean, American culture has been dominated by post-Cold War complacency. I mean, it, it just has. And, and the dominant art of the last 25 years has reflected that. Um, and I think that that's about to change, and I wish it weren't. I just hope people can grasp that distinction. I'm not rooting for it, but I'm expecting I know, it. I know. Stipulated you're not rooting for it, but I object to the like general concept regardless of whether we're rooting for it or not. Like, What do you mean American culture has been complacent for the last 25 years? What about 9-11 and uh, the Bush administration and the Iraq war and torture like – you know, either you argue that those like barely ruffled the surface of the American psyche, which I don't think is true, or you argue that they did, but art failed to reflect it. In which case, why wouldn't you also think that might be what happens going ahead? I got to tell, I got to tell you, that's incredibly a historical analysis. Like those things were very large experiences to certain segments of the population. But one of the things we learned, for example, is that the people who actually fucking fought the Iraq War are not also the cultural elite who. Um, create the vast majority of culture in this country, there was a completely different dynamic at work in the Vietnam War, where there was an attempt at universal conscription that was short-circuited by the student uh, deferment, and that created a kind of civil war. Um, You know, that's just completely different. I'm not saying that there, that, (laughs) I'm not saying that violent, disruptive things haven't happened in American culture in the last 25 years. If you study the civil rights movement, the 60s and the 70s, through which I lived, um, and you study what happened in this con- in this country, for example, with Italian anarchists, you know, leading up to the hanging of Sacco and Vanzetti, this country is capable of fighting, you know, not even cold civil wars with itself, but, you know, medium, warm, simmering, and occasionally explosive civil wars with itself. And by and large, that is not what the last 25 years have been like. I mean, Steve, at least one small refutation of that narrative you just constructed is that I think there's no way that you can say 9-11 was not some kind of rip in the fabric of, you know, America's conception of itself and its own security and its place in the world. And I mean, in a way, we're still on the trajectory that was created by that that rip. I mean, I think this is so hard to talk about because, you know, of course, we're basically prognosticating, right? We're trying to predict what kind of art will arise from the moment that we're living in. And we don't even understand the politics of the moment that we're living in yet. Um, I think when Julia was talking about reception, you know, the reception of works of art in different political periods, I was able to wrap my mind more around what that meant. And I was thinking about Moonlight coming out when it did, as you say, in 2016, and its place in the whole awards race that's starting now. And uh, I think that as much as I was a huge fan of La La Land and it was fun to see it win all those Golden Globes, I, I now feel that I'm a part of the, the, the awards backlash against it in some way because it's not its moment. I just I don't think that it's the moment for us to be you know distracted by a fun, colorful musical. And in some ways, I feel like that gravity and the, the specific social cultural story that Moonlight tells is one that we need to listen to and hear. And this, I guess, goes back to homeopathic versus allopathic art that we've discussed on the show before that, you know, do you use art to distract you and entertain you? Or do you use art to sort of bring you deeper into some other reality with which you can empathize, as as Meryl Streep talked about at the Golden Globes? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, it's it's a few days after the Golden Globes, so we're not treating it as an actual segment. But I was astounded by... I mean, not it's, Meryl Streep being amazing is never astounding because one expects it. But I thought that the speech Meryl Streep gave was actually 
incredibly smart and thoughtful and powerful about this exact question of what art can do generally and why it could be particularly important now and and this notion of empathy and who we have empathy for and whose stories we strive to tell seems totally vital. I you know, I think last week when we talked about La La Land, I felt like, eh, it wasn't my bag, but you know, go have a lot of fun and you know, do your uh, lo-fi soft shoe and enjoy yourselves, kids. And I found myself watching the Golden Globes like enraged by every La La Land victory. Like just like sit down, Emma Stone. <laughs> <laughs> like shut up, Damien Chazelle. Like the the you know, and honestly, like right, it's the story of it's the story of artists wanting to make art, right? But the case they make for the art they want to make, she seems to want to be a movie star, but we don't understand why mm-hmm. or why that matters. She just wants to be on the big screen because she loves the movies. Uh, and he, you know, cares about the purity of jazz for reasons that are not deeply explored. And you you just, I don't know, I was so happy when Moonlight, uh, I mean, I guess they both won, right? But um, I was so happy Moonlight was able to win too in the um, circumstances of the Golden Globes where comedies and musicals and dramas do not have to fight each other in the in the Thunderdome. But like, I am ready to mount a steed and carry a lance on behalf of Moonlight. Like, screw those caperers. Well, if it means anything, Julia, the Golden Globes are really pretty much of null importance when it yes, comes yes, to what happens with the Oscars. And if anything, La La Land has now been set up for a huge backlash of exactly the kind that you described. So I think it's going to, it's probably going to take a second seat to moonlight at the Oscars. Right. And the Oscars are of null importance with what uh, happens with life, but um... <laughs> also true. <laughs> well, I hear you, Steve. I mean, I think it would be interesting if, if art and culture somehow are forced to more concertedly publicly reckon with the moment. And it sounds like we all also agree that economic uncertainty can affect who gets to make art and tell stories and that those aren't um, necessarily effects that we relish. So we'll see. All right. Well, um, no doubt uh, listeners will have all kinds of uh, opinions about this. We'd love to hear them. Go to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us, do you think bad times make for great art? Do you think it's a falsely posed question? Do you think our answers are decadent? Slime. Um, let us know. <laughs> decadent slime. <laughs> Maybe this should be the decadent slime edition. I think we have a title. All right, moving on. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. <laughs> Can I just tell you that that is a very popular feature of our podcast? I cannot tell you how many people have <laughs> emailed or tweeted me with the, the phrase Dana, spelled with huge numbers of A's. Uh, <laughs> but I'm so used to it, I barely hear it anymore. Yes, I do have an endorsement that I'm quite excited about. So the adults in my household are only really hyped for two broadcast shows, I would say, two network shows during the year. They are Better Call Saul and The Americans, both of which we've talked about on this show, I believe. Better right? Call Saul, best show on television. Completely agree. In fact, last night, my man and I had a conversation about if you had to give up one of our two shows, because I was asking, well, when does the Americans come back on? And we were Googling the return date anxiously. And he said, if you had to give up, either Better Call Saul, Never Watch It Again, or the Americans, Never Watch It Again, what would you do? And it was such a Scylla Charybdis choice. And I ended up just because of Breaking Bad and the feeling that Better Call Saul is part of some larger story that I want all the holes to be filled in. I ended up choosing Better Call Saul. But I'm also a passionate advocate of the Americans. And that's what my endorsement has to do with. So as you anxiously await the March return of season five, I believe it's season five now of the Americans, perhaps you've been wondering what the creator Joel Weisberg thinks about the current Russia situation and the fact that, you know, the election has apparently been hacked by Russians and that 
president-elect may be some sort of Russian operative, in at least in the fantasies of, of some uh, progressives, and is at the very least is a big friend to Vladimir Putin. I've been asking myself, will, is it possible those will be incorporated into future plot lines of the Americans? What does Joe Weisberg, the show's co-creator, along with Joel Fields, think about all of this Russian business in the election? All of that has gone through my mind in past weeks. And as it happens, Joe Weisberg appeared on a PBS talk show in which he talked about exactly that. It was an interview about the upcoming season of The Americans, but also about his experience in the intelligence community and what he thinks is going on right now with uh, with the U.S. and Russia. It's absolutely fascinating. It's, it's a show called Open Mind that I hadn't heard of before. That's just kind of a one-on-one Charlie Rose-style interview. Who, of course, we should, as I think our listeners know, we should mention Joe Weisberg is our chairman, Jacob Weisberg's brother. So all the more reason to listen. That's right. And it's fascinating for reasons you might not expect. I was surprised to hear that Joe Weisberg was much less alarmist about the current Russia-U.S. relationship than than I tend to be and that most of the people I, I read on it tend to be. And that as somebody with a long time experience in this field, the field of, of intelligence, that he regarded this situation as being less novel and less shockingly new than than you might think. So I won't spoil anything, but uh, it might calm you down a bit to listen to this, and it will certainly be interesting. And also just give you a little bit of a appetizer for the next season of The American. Uh, this is in the can be filed or tagged under the classic Julia Turner endorsement style of endorsing the fact of the sky being blue or the or sunshine or rainbows or puppies, um, but. If you are interested in the question of great art and how it is made and by whom and when, you should take it upon yourselves to reread or read for the first time if you have not the essay A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. It is so radical and so extraordinary. And it's, I mean, Virginia Woolf wrote so much beyond her fiction. You could get lost in Virginia Woolf's letters for like decades and decades if you wanted to. I haven't read a ton of them. But it's very bracing to see her precision and nuance and clarity applied in a more essayistic format if you're more familiar with um, her using those skills to get you into the interiors of various minds. Um, and it, I don't know, rereading it again, it, it, it strikes me as just as pertinent now as it was in 1929 when she first delivered it as a set of remarks. She was asked to speak about women in fiction and the argument is that it's really impossible um, to do so because women have not had the opportunity to create fiction because they generally do not have a room of one's own. There is no space in the life of a woman a century ago, and you can debate how much there is now, um, to go into a room and not be bothered by laundry or children or obligations or the notion of the separate sphere that... My room of my own actually has the laundry in it, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm always aware that there's housework to be done as I muse away. That's so awesome. In any event, if you're one of those people who sort of has a room of one's own and a room with a view filed in your head jointly and can't keep them apart, like A Room of One's Own is the bracing essay by Virginia Woolf about uh, women as creators and why generally they haven't been able to do much of it. And it's incredibly worth reading. Here, uh, here, it's just one of the great essays uh, ever written. Um, all right. For the first time in this history of the show, I believe I'm going to endorse something that I don't um, like or admire. Um, <laughs> that's the work of the English philosopher Derek Parfit, who died on January 1st, 2017. Parfit is best known. He did not publish prolifically, He um, he, but he's best known for his 1984 book, Reasons and Persons. I think I disagree with every single word of Reasons and Persons, all of its premises, all of its conclusions, its style of thought. Um, 
and um, and the sort of general ethos and spirit that seems to have um, animated its writing. Nonetheless, um, Parfit is one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, and he wrote about personal identity from a p- powerfully counterintuitive point of view. He essentially said it didn't really exist, and that um, it would, in fact, he found it personally liberating to have philosophized his way beyond the notion of uh, a cogent, um, you know, temp- temporally consistent um, personal identity over time made him uh, a more empathetic person and more ready to face his own demise. I will say that in in um, trying to understand why I disagree with Parfit, who has 10 times the brain power of me, I, I, I went in search of uh, deputy dogs to help me out and discovered a philosopher at Harvard named Christina Korsgaard, who's um, a Kantian and has written the most intelligent and sustained responses uh, to Parfit in favor of a much more Kantian notion of personal identity. Um, And her work is beautiful and accessible. Um, And so I do recommend that highly, though, in in essence, my endorsement is is Parfit um, and the necessity of people taking powerfully, powerfully counterintuitive and morally challenging positions, even if they're wrong and trying to pursue them um, as rigorously as possible. So anyway, Reasons and Persons is truly one of the classics of 20th century philosophy, even though it's completely wrong. (laughs) Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of really wonderful podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon. 